I was uh, thinking, I do that every now and then. You know, if somebody is a member of Sherwood and they've never come on Sunday night, they don't even know what this church is about. They don't have a clue. Because there's, uh, quite honestly, two different churches here. There's a different, or there is. I mean, we got some folks that think they're going to enjoy heaven because they come every other week on the mornings. And uh, they don't enjoy God enough to come back on Sunday nights. I don't know why they think they're going to enjoy eternity. But uh, I have said before, and I will say it again, if, if I got to the point where I could only preach one service, I would preach Sunday nights. And I'd let the Sunday morning crowd figure it out. <laughs> They've already heard, heard more now than they're living up to. I'd preach Sunday nights. Because to be honest with you folks, if this church moves forward, it will move forward on her knees and it will move forward with a core of people. Um, you never wait on the majority to do what's right. Because sometimes the majority is wrong. You realize the majority said man would never go to the moon. They were wrong. There's a lot of things the majority has been wrong about. But God always gets the last word. And when we come to the end of 2 Timothy, we see the last words the greatest Christian that ever lived, and that's the Apostle Paul. He's a good soldier ready to give himself. These are his last words, probably dictated to Luke, written within days of being beheaded and martyred for the gospel. For the last 30 years, this man has traveled the length and breadth of Asia Minor and given himself for the gospel. He has preached, he has labored, he has planted churches, he has fought opposition to the purity of the Word of God, and this in many ways is his last State of the Union, his farewell address. He's been loved, he's been hated, he's been embraced, and he's been persecuted. He is a man who holds no grudges. He's a man who has no regrets, save that he did not get to go to Spain and share the gospel there. Here's a man who knows he's about to die and has nothing left to do. That's a complete man. That's a man who has finished his course and run his race. He has no regrets. He has no, I wish I had done this over. I wish I had done this better. He has lived so focused on his life being pleasing to God that he is ready to meet God face to face. His priority was the gospel. His banner was the cross, and his successor is a young man named Timothy, who in outward appearances most likely and in tenacity and in personality was no match or even close to being an equal to the Apostle Paul. But it was to him that Paul had entrusted the gospel to continue the work after he was gone. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, 
reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Here's a man who knew you weren't going to change things overnight. You just had to plow the ground and plant and pray for harvest. In fact, you can almost read in these words the range of the emotions of his voice as he is reminding timid Timothy, reprove, rebuke him if you have to, with great gentleness and patience. He's trying to help Timothy understand the tone of the gospel as well as the truth of the gospel and how it is to be presented. He's been hammering into him about being spiritually fit and rising to the occasion and calling him to be a cut above. If you just turn back a page to chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy's had a taste of authority and a taste of responsibility. Now all the mantle is going to be thrown on his shoulder. So there's two things that I want us to see in this last will and testament of the Apostle Paul, and that is the highest priority, the highest priority. He says, I charge you. I charge you. It's an authoritative command. It's the command of an apostle of God who is acting on behalf of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just saying, I charge you because I'm Paul. He's saying, I charge you because I'm an apostle called of God, and God called me, and now I'm calling you. I'm bringing you out. This is a serious charge. And he talks to him in the context of the fear of God, and that Timothy should have a healthy fear of God in his life. Here's the thing. The fear of God is not a bad thing. We, we have somehow in our culture made it a bad thing, but the fear of God is actually healthy. Amen. Uh, I, had a, I had a fear of my dad, not a fear. Well, I was afraid he would hurt me because, you know, when we were cleaning out my parents' house, I found my board of education and the things I had written on it, like ouch and zowie and <laughs> ee and things like that. And, but there's a healthy fear of God. A healthy respect of God. Psalms 19 and verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So he gives him specific orders. He gives him a charge. Those of you that are in the military or been in the military, you know that orders are to be carried out to the fullest. One of the reasons why Civil War historians say that Lee lost the battle in Gettysburg, which really would have divided our nation in a way that we would have never recovered from, as some historians say, if the South had won the war, we would probably be 12 nations now, and America would look much like Europe. And when Hitler started rolling across Europe, there would have been no great nation to rise up and stop the tide of Nazism, and we would all be living under Nazi socialism today. 
had the South won the war. It's an interesting theory. But the thing, there was a thing about Lee that was unique. First of all, he didn't have his eyes and his ears. Stuart was off getting his own glory as a cavalry officer, and he was off riding around trying to make a name for himself. And he didn't have the eyes and the ears of where the Meade's army was moving and coming in on a parallel path with Lee. And so Lee was caught unaware. But the second most crucial thing that happened, it happened a couple of months before. In Chancellorsville, Stonewall Jackson had been shot by his own men. He'd been wounded and killed by friendly fire. And there was a relationship between Lee and, and Jackson that was unique in, in that Lee could say something and Jackson knew immediately how to interpret that as a direct order. It would be uh, move and take the ground if you can. Jackson interpreted that as if I'm the last man killed, I'm taking that ground. Ewell and other commanders under him were not so sure. They were tentative. They were fearful. They had never walked in the kind of shoes that Stonewall Jackson had walked in. In fact, Stonewall Jackson at the time of his death was more famous around the world than even Abraham Lincoln was or even Robert E. Lee. He was known as one of the greatest generals to ever wear a uniform in the United States. A sorry school teacher, an incredible tactical general. But he was gone. And so when Lee gave orders to pursue, and if you engage, pursue at all cost, other generals backed off and they said, well, there was more there than we thought. That's nothing, Jackson would have never said that. And so when Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, he doesn't say to Timothy, now, Timothy, if you feel like it, stand up for the gospel. He says, Timothy, in light of the orders that I've been given, you carry out the same orders. And you do it with the intent of going and pursuing and doing battle with the enemy to win the lives and the hearts of people. And he gives five specific orders. Order number one is preach the word. It is first and foremost. Now, notice what is not mentioned. When he charges him to preach the word, he does not mention gifts, tongues, signs, wonders, or healing because that's not Paul's primary message to the church. Some people have elevated the secondary into the primary. Paul says the primary purpose for a church to exist is to preach the word, to preach the gospel. And his concern is that we answer to Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Now, I want you to look at what he calls it here. In verse 2, he calls it the Word. In verse 3, sound doctrine. In verse 4, the truth. In verse 7, the faith. And all those are preceded by a definite article. It's not just... Timothy's ideas. It's not what he read in a book. It's not what he got off the internet. Internet. He is to preach the word. It's the same thing he said in chapter 1 about the deposit that has been given, that what was given to the prophets and through the law and to the apostles, Timothy now is to carry it on. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still to do that. Amen. I love what John Stott says. He said, our responsibility is not just to hear the word, to believe it and obey it, not just to guard it, preserving it from every false implication, not even just to suffer for it. 
and to continue in it, but to preach it. It has been invested in us, and we are to invest it in other people. And, and the Greek picture here is of a herald, and the Greeks and the Romans, when they wanted to broadcast news, a herald would go and post a notice from the emperor on a post, and then he would stand on a, on a column or somewhere where he could get above the crowd, and he would shout out without fear of what anybody thought of him the news that was to be proclaimed. The orders from Caesar, the orders from the emperor, the orders from the king were to be shouted out without fear or without favor. It was the first example of objective journalism, not subjective. He was just to carry out orders as a herald. So he says, first of all, preach the word. Secondly, be ready. In season and out of season. In season and out of season. When it feels good, when it doesn't feel good. When you feel like it, when you don't feel like it. The verb means to be urgent or instant. Literally to stand by and be available. Again, if you're in the military and you're in the reserves, you're to always be ready and to be available and to be on call. You're to be ready to step out and move out and get to where you need to go. In Israel, where every person, man and woman, serves in the military, which wouldn't hurt our country, where every person serves in the military up until the age of 45, they know where to call and where to go to get uniforms, to get guns, to get ammunition, to get supplies, and where to report if there is a national crisis. We have friends in Israel, and he can tell you right now, although he's just past the age of 45, he can tell you right now exactly where he was to go if there was any crisis, if there was any terrorist attack, where he was to go, who he was to report to, and what he was to do. Always prepared always assuming that I will be called and ready to be called. The New English says, press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. And he's speaking here about the speaker, not the hearers, but that we are to be ready in season and out of season, always on duty, because the Bible is telling us to proclaim the word. Now, this is not rudeness. But it is a biblical command for boldness. And the context is a sense of urgency and the force and the pressure of the immediacy of the moment and the need of the hour. Richard Baxter described it well. He said, How few preachers preach with all their might. Some ministers preach so softly that weeping sinners cannot hear. The blow falls so lightly that the hard-hearted cannot feel it. Sirs, you cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them or patching up a gaudy oration. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon the drowsy request of one who seems not to mean what he speaks or to care much whether he be heard. It is imperative on us to be ready and prepared with the gospel. Thirdly, he says to reprove. This is related to the word reprove in chapter 3 and verse 16. 
This is the ability to present your case, to contend for the gospel, to be an apologist. And that doesn't mean apologizing for the Bible. It means defending it. To be well-read and well-studied where you can defend the truth of the Scriptures, where you know the facts of the Scriptures. Number four, rebuke. Rebuke. David was rebuked by Nathan. Peter was rebuked by Paul. There comes a time when the gospel calls for a rebuke. And it is oftentimes in reproving and rebuking that revival comes. Because there's a rebuke of sin. Don't act like your sin didn't put Jesus on the cross and don't act like their sin didn't put Jesus on the cross. Number five, we are to exhort with great patience and instruction. The word exhort means to encourage or to bring comfort. It's one of the terms used of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, listen. One of the sad things I've observed in my ministry is that fewer and fewer people, and this church is an exception, and we don't ever need to move out of this, okay? But fewer and fewer people feel a concern to see a friend in the hospital or to see a family at a death. Now, this church is the exception to that because you can go to the hospital and you'll find church members going in and out of church members' rooms and seeing them and visiting them. And you can go to a visitation. Uh, I've been to visitations of funerals here. And there's been a visitation for somebody in another church. And the people from this church that weren't even really well known will have five times more people than the other church. Now, I'm not saying that for us to pat ourselves on the back and say, aren't we doing a good job? What I'm saying is this. In times of grief and in times of suffering and in times of crisis, many people are open to the gospel that are not open to the gospel at other times. They're looking for answers. Where is my loved one? What's going to happen to me when I die? And a funeral is one of the greatest times to present the gospel because quite honestly, because people don't feel a need to go to church anymore, they don't feel obligated to be in the church anymore. Some people, the only time they darken a church is at a funeral or a wedding. But when people are grieving and when people are hurting, he's saying, exhort with great patience and instruction. What he's saying here in reprove and rebuke and exhort, he's saying the gospel works in every situation and in every circumstance. One commentator suggests that reprove addresses the intellectual, rebuke addresses the emotional, and exhort addresses the will. All of them are carried out in an atmosphere of great patience and instruction. I think what Paul is saying here is that we are not to use gimmicks or pressure or guilt to try to get somebody to do something or to respond or to make a decision that they don't really mean. Uh, we have a lot of emphasis on making decisions and on accepting Christ, which the term accept Christ never appears in the Bible. You see, he accepted us. <laughs> But the term except Christ never appears. But you, 
You, you know how some people witness, don't you? And this is how they, you know, this is how they tell you, oh man, I led people to the Lord. I've led all these people to the Lord. This is how they witness. They'll pull a track out of their coat and say, here, won't you read this track? What does it say? What does this track say right here? So just read along with me. Would you just mind reading along with me? Just read along with me. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, listen, my back's bothering me. Would you pick that up? And they go down to pick it up and they say, now while my brother's on his knee and as he prays these words after me, <laughs> dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me, and I thank you for accepting me and your family. Amen. Praise God. Brother, you're saved. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you need to deal with the core issue that separates man from God, and that is sin. And you need to confront man with sin, and you need to confront man with the only hope that there is to cleanse sin. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to be faithful. The results of sharing the gospel are in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to just be true. Verse 3, for the time will come, and buddy, it has come, <laughs> when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is even more urgent because we are a nation of people who flock to ear ticklers. Make me feel good about myself. Meet my felt needs. And I've, I've, I've said this often, but I need to say it again, especially in the context of this message. If a person doesn't get right with God, first and foremost, then giving them 12 ways to be a better parent or to be a better spouse or to be a better employee or to have better business ethics won't work because then it becomes self-help and self-help doesn't fix our problems you see the to the extent to which relational messages work is to the extent with which this message works and one of the reasons why I don't preach a lot of series on the family is quite honestly because I'm not an expert on it number one and number two because we got too many folks in this church that have never been a knee and had a broken heart over their sin before God, but they want the church and God to fix their family. And until you get right with God, all the messages in the world on the family aren't going to get you right. It's just going to be a temporary band-aid on a hemorrhage of what's going on. Listen, I was in youth ministry for 15 years, and Stephen, you were in youth ministry, and parents would come and say, I need help with my kids. And I'd look at them and say, you're a lousy parent. You don't come to church. You don't support them. You don't pray with them. You don't love You need help for yourself before you worry about your kids. But uh, am I right? They'd sit there and look at you and say, no, my kid is the one that's in trouble. I said, no, you're the one that stinks. Your kid is just reacting to a stinking parent. They're just responding to you because they don't see anything of God in you. Why should they be any different? Well, I came here for you to fix my kid. No, you didn't. You came here for me to tell you something that make you feel better about yourself, and I'm not going to do that. So that's why I don't do counseling. 
I mean, nobody wants to come to me for counseling. You know, you will never see me. You will never see me. And, and believe me, my mercy is better than it used to be. But you, but you will never see me listening to somebody that I know has got junk and garbage all in their life telling me what's wrong with other people and going, bless your heart. What I'll do is I'll say, you're a knucklehead. <laughs> you're the problem. And, and until we understand that the key is that we've got to share the gospel with people and get people in a right relationship with God, which is what Paul is telling Timothy, I'm about to go. Here's the one thing I've got time to tell you about. Don't tickle people's ears. Don't tell them what they want to hear. Don't, don't preach in a way, and I want to tell you something. Preachers know how to preach in a way to get a crowd to respond to them. You don't believe that? Watch religious television. I mean, there's a psychological manipulation that can happen with somebody that's not preaching the Word. To get a crowd to respond, to get people worked up, to get people to do what they want them to do. They search for teachers who will wow them and appeal to their personal preferences over God's revelation. Literally, here's what Paul says. Having the hearing tickled. In other words, there's an itch for novelty. There's an itch for novelty. My wife usually watches the uh, nationwide competition when she's getting ready for church on Sunday morning just to see what everybody else is doing. And one Sunday she turns on the TV and there's a guy who's preaching about 22,000 people. It's not the one you think I'm thinking about. It's another one. He preaches to about 22,000 people on Sunday. And one Sunday he's preaching. I don't know what he said yet, but here's the one thing she remembers about that sermon. Seven years later, he was taking tortillas out and throwing them into the congregation. Oh, boy, that's what Jesus died for. Jesus hung on that cross, bleeding, dying, bearing the weight of the world, and saying, I sure hope Ed will throw those tortillas out there so everybody can try to catch them while the Word's being preached. Two Sundays later, he walked around with an umbrella over his head the whole time. Now, can I just tell you something? That doesn't have anything to do with the price of rice out of China or the price of beans in southwest Georgia. It's not preaching the gospel. It's just gimmicks. It's just gimmicks. I mean, I could come over here, you know, and I, I could ride a tricycle across the stage, and you'd say, boy, he's got long legs to ride a tricycle across the stage. And if I preached the greatest message I'd ever preached, the only thing you'd walk out and say is, I can't believe the preacher can ride a tricycle. But you know what? If I rode a tricycle, some of you would go out and invite somebody to come by. I don't know what he's going to do next week, but last week he rode a tricycle. <laughs> because there are always people that want their ears tickled. And they want to hear things that make them feel good about themselves. Listen, the gospel doesn't make me feel good about myself. It makes me feel real good about a God who loves me in spite of myself. 1 John 2.24, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Ephesians 4.20, You did not learn Christ in this way. 
Why should we preach the gospel? Why should we stand firm? Because Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. So look at what he says to Timothy. Be sober, watch out, endure hardship. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. That's not just a call for the professional evangelist and the vocational evangelist. That's for all of us. Fulfill your ministry, finish well. And then hanging up the boots. Here's a man who's about to take his boots off for the last time and had his head rolled. And don't draw a line between verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he says, but you, in verse 6, for I am... You remember Joshua succeeded Moses and Solomon succeeded David and Timothy will succeed Paul. And so in verse 6 he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. 52 words in the Greek, and Paul sums up his life. It's interesting, these are the last words that will be recorded from the pen of Luke, dictated by Paul. The last words of Steve Jobs were, wow, wow. Wow. Not something we're all going to walk out and build our lives around. Somebody said to a friend of mine, said, well, you know, Steve Jobs was a Buddhist, and, and my friend said he was. He's not anything now except in hell. And to think that a man could have touched so many of our lives with his technology but he couldn't save his own soul That's right. and to sum up his life as people stood around him all he could say was wow 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 I wonder what he saw that was wow this is my holy speculation I think he saw the end was not what he thought it was going to be and he got a glimpse of where he was headed So Paul's in this prison cell, and he's given his farewell address, and in a few words, he summarizes his life, and he uses two metaphors. The first one is the drink offering, the drink offering. It's a technical term used for a cup of wine that the Romans would sacrifice to their multiple gods, that they would pour out to their gods. And as Paul had said in Romans 12, 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The New, International, New English says, my life is being poured out on the altar. Paul saw his life as an offering to the living God. Not only the drink offering, but the time of my departure is at hand. This is a great phrase. It has two pictures, primarily in the Greek, there are two pictures of this word the time of my departure. First is the loosening of ropes and taking down of a tent. You see, there was a tabernacle in the wilderness and our bodies are like a tent and there comes a day when we take down this tabernacle, when we take down this tent and when we move on. 
And so it's temporary. The body is temporary. I mean, none of us are going to live forever. And our bodies decay, and they wear out. And the strength of youth becomes the frailty of senior adults. So there's the taking down of the tent, but there's also the lines being relaxed on a ship that is leaving the dock so that it can set sail. No longer tied up, no longer anchored down, but released to sail. And Paul is gathering his tent and he's setting sail. Not so much the end of his life, but the beginning of a new life of eternal life in glory. And in the remaining words in verses 7 and 8, he gives us his life perspective how he would summarize his life. Now, let, let me tell you why this is important. Because this is included in the inerrant authoritative word of God. So when Paul wrote these words, first of all, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do it. Secondly, God approved that they be included in the Bible. So this is God's evaluation of Paul that he allows Paul to say of himself as an example to us about how we should finish. I have fought the good fight. Now, boxing was a major sport in the Olympics, but it wasn't just boxing confined to boxing. In fact, the word here is agon, the source of our word agony. Paul said, I've left it all on the field. I gave everything I had. I played all four quarters. I fought every battle. I stayed until my duty was done. I did my job. I fulfilled my calling. I have fought the good fight. One athlete said this, I'd rather lose having done my best than win having never been pressed. I'd rather lose having done my best than win and have never been pressed. I have finished the courts. You see, it's not so much a matter of winning, but of finishing. People that run in marathons, I think today was the New York City Marathon, but people that run in marathons, most of them know they're not going to win. They, they train and run to do one thing. They want to be able to say they finished. They just, they don't necessarily want to win. They probably know that it's impossible for them to win. Some guy from Kenya that weighs 73 pounds is going to win that thing. <laughs> you know, and none of us are going to win it. But if we could run and finish and get the t-shirt, <laughs> that would be the accomplishment. You heard the story a few weeks ago about the guy who ran in a marathon and he got a trophy for finishing. The problem was he caught a cab, took the cab to about a mile from the finish line, got out of the cab and ran. And then the people started saying, did you see him? No, I didn't see him. Did you see him? And they found out he had, took a, he had taken a cab. Here's what he said. I didn't know that was against the rules. It's called a marathon, not a, hey, taxi. <laughs> he said, I've fought the fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, this is an important one because the Greek and Roman athletes and soldiers took a vow and an oath that they would compete honorably and favorably that they wouldn't cheat. I was listening to an interview uh, the other day talking about the NFL and, and one, uh, one coach who challenged his lineman to take out at least five knees that year of other players by chop blocks and by cheap tackles. 
You see, the Greek athlete, and by that's the way, that, that's what happens in a valueless society. It no longer bothers you to hurt somebody else to try to win a game. You don't want to fight fair, you want to play dirty. But the Greek soldier fought honorably, and the Greek athlete battled honorably. And, and to get that trophy, they had to take an oath that they would compete honorably. So the work of the gospel, Paul defines as fighting a fight, running a race, and guarding a treasure. And all of them involved discipline and sacrifice and danger. He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. We know, and you're familiar because you're students of the Bible, that the crown was a laurel wreath that could decay and dry up. But this was a crown of righteousness that would not go away. As I was studying this, I became very impressed with a little sarcasm that Paul is using here. If you look at that little phrase, a, a crown of righteousness, <laughs> I want you to picture Paul and what he's got going on in his mind because he knows death is coming. It's as if Paul is saying, now in a matter of days, if not hours, but a matter of days at the most, I'm going to die. Nero has made a judgment to condemn me to death. He's going to cut my head off, and he thinks that's going to stop me. But the moment he cuts my head off, God is going to reverse his decision, and he's going to put a crown of righteousness on me. By the way, a crown goes on your head. And so Paul is almost laughing at the so-called authority of Rome and saying, you can cut my head off, but the minute it goes off and I breathe my last bed breath, God's going to reattach it and put a crown of righteousness on top of it. And look over heaven and say, Nero doesn't get the last word. God gets the last word. You wonder, what did the early church think when they realized that Paul was gone. I mean, the word, it would have taken months for that word to spread across Asia Minor and get its way into Israel, to Jerusalem. What would they have thought? What are we going to do without Paul? I mean, disciples were being killed and martyrs. Stephen had been killed. Peter would be killed a few years later. All of the disciples would end up martyrs, except for John, who was in exile for most of his life. Vance Havner said it this way, God sometimes snuffs out our brightest star so that we will look for his eternal light. The messenger dies, but the message goes on. And that's the message of 2 Timothy. The torch of the gospel is handed down from generation to generation to generation. And death has no power over the gospel. Death has no power over the grave. Death has no power over the will of God. He rules and he overrules. And for those who run the race and finish the course and fight the fight and keep the faith, there is laid up a crown of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. Amen. There are times when I've stumbled and there are times when I've 
not run the race as well as I should have, but I want to finish well. I don't want to be one of those that has an asterisk by their name, didn't quite make it, blew it, compromised, sold out. I told the pastors in Mississippi this past week, I said, if you quit the ministry, if you blow it, here's what you need to understand. Every prayer that's ever been prayed for you, every sermon you've ever written, every Bible study you've ever done, every person you've ever witnessed to, everything you've done in your life will be in vain because you quit because you didn't finish the race that God put you on. Most of the people I went to college with and seminary with are not in the ministry today. They've quit along the way. They've caved in, they've compromised, they've sold out, they've divorced their wives. They've made a lot of bad decisions. And they will always be remembered as what could have been. My two daughters knew some of them, and there's no way their name ever comes up these days or any day in the future. But it's not with a sadness and with a tear of thinking, I miss the fellowship. I miss the friendship. I miss the iron sharpens iron. But somewhere along the path, those men decided it wasn't worth it to run the race. That their desires and their wishes and their will was more important. That's not the number I want to be counted in at the end of my journey. I want to be counted among those who finished well. As Vance Havner said, I want to get home before dark. It's a good prayer to pray, by the way. He said, I want to get home and meet my Jesus before I do something to blow my testimony, before I lose my mind, or I lose my abilities, or I lose my passion. He said, because I don't want to be remembered as one that didn't get home before dark I know this the closer we stay to this book this book will see us home because this book says that for those who do what Paul did there is laid up a crown of righteousness and by the way, when Jesus puts a crown of righteousness on you, it's not so you can walk around and compare if your crown's bigger than somebody else's. The Bible says we're going to lay them all at his feet because he's the only one that deserves praise. And if we finish well, it will not be because we were better than somebody else. It was because we were broken and humble and obedient and aware of how treacherous this journey really is. And that Satan is out to destroy 
and to defeat and to sidetrack us. Let it not be said of any of us in this room tonight that our labor was in vain. Let's pray together. I'm sure that if you thought for a moment you could think of someone who used to be active in this church or in some other church you were in who's no longer serving God or walking with God. Somebody who was faithful. I mean, they wouldn't miss, and now they rarely come. There's a teenager that at some point in middle school or high school made a commitment and said, I'm going to be what God wants me to be, and now they're playing around the edges with sin and compromising. There's a family that said, we're going to serve God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and now there are cracks in the foundation. some of those folks their failure will be final because they will go so far away that they will never repent because they don't want to repent for others there's still hope and maybe it's you or the one to go remind them of what they used to be or how they used to live, or how faithful they once were. The most important thing we can do in this moment before we sing our way out is to beg a holy God that we wouldn't be one of those statistics. that we wouldn't be AWOL, that we wouldn't be deserters, that we would not be play soldiers, that we would be men and women who are soldiers of the cross, committed to serve our King until the day we die. best thing we could pray right now is Lord I want to run the race I want to finish the course I want to fight the good fight a lot of fights to fight but I want to fight the good fight and I want to live in such a way that I know that the Lord who judges the living and the dead will one day give me a crown of righteousness for all who love his appearing. Paul says other words in this book, some personal words, but this is his testimony. He's hanging his boots up.
really the next step he takes will be into glory. And God gave, may give you and I another day, another year, another 10 years, or another 50 years. We have no promise of tomorrow. What we have a promise is that God is with us now. He is with us here. And he has given us the strength to stand. And we need to be concerned about those who fall away and who don't run the race and it needs to break our hearts. But can I remind you that Paul said to Timothy, but you... Make this personal, that you not fall away, that you not quit, that you not fail in what God has called you to be. The stakes are too high for us to have another casualty. The reason we have casualties in the Christian life is because we forget we're in a war. We're in a battle. And the enemy is trying to take us out. So be good soldiers. March in step with God and His Word. Live in obedience and surrender to Him. so that in all things he might be glorified in us. Father, I thank you for these last words of Paul in this last book, his last will and testament. Thank you for the truth that remains and still has power. Lord, I thank you that we are not a church, and nor do we have Sunday school teachers or youth workers or children's workers that just tickle ears. I thank you for the commitment that we have to preach the word and be faithful to the word of God. Help us in this day of watering down the gospel to be crystal clear about what it is and why it's so important. I pray, Father, that we will be good soldiers of the cross. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I went a little long, so I'm going to let you leave, and I'm going to let the uh, praise team sing us out.